got a French toast uh, bagel. You got uh, sweet dough, and you also got garlic onion. That's, I mean, the garlic one is awesome. So have at it. One day, I was over at Manny's place in the Northeast Bronx, a one-bedroom apartment above a laundromat. I asked him to give me and my producer, Meg, a tour. A quick tour? Oh, oh my mess here? Yeah. <laughs> the walls were covered with art. A painting of a beach at sunset. A print of a dark-haired woman in a slinky red dress. <laughs> and then on the other side is the reclining nude, which is uh, when Pablo Picasso was about 30 years old. It's on the third floor of the Metropolitan Museum of Modern Art on 84th Street. I fell in love with that one. My mom would take me to the Met, and we would go and always go to all the museums, and she would make me read all the the um, little plates saying what the item was, like what Rodin was, what a Monet was, what a Picasso was, and what a Renoir was, and mm-hmm. to know the differences. I've been a museum member since I was, what, 10 years old? You know, in the hallway off Manny's bathroom, there was one piece in particular that caught my eye. It was a copy of a 19th century painting of a scene from Greek mythology. A dead man is lying on some rocks by the sea. Giant feathered wings are strapped to his arms, and a bunch of nymphs are standing over him, caressing his lifeless body. This is um, a picture of Icarus. The reason why I have it between my bedroom and the bathroom is so that I continuously remember the importance of it. And this picture is a guy who was obsessed with the ability of flying. So he created wings and he jumped off a mountain. He glided for a while and actually did fly. And then he fell to the earth and crashed. But the angels come up and pick up his body because of his love and commitment to what he, what he wanted to do. All right. And so this teaches me one of the most important lessons, which is it is better to die for something than to live for nothing. Most people exist. Very few people dare to live. That's an interesting interpretation of the Icarus tale. Because the other interpretation is that you shouldn't fly too close to the sun. It's a a lesson about hubris. Exactly correct. But you know what? I say, hell with that shit and go past the sun. (laughs) I always try to push the envelope. In the months since then, I've often thought back to this moment. Manny sees himself as Icarus, and at times I've seen him as Icarus too. But which version of Icarus is he? The one in his imagination, flying past the sun, bound for glory? Or the Icarus you and I and everyone knows? A flawed man with fake wings who flies too high and falls back to Earth. From Gimlet Media, I'm Saki Kanafo, and this is Conviction. Early one morning in late July, Meg and I meet up with Manny outside his building. At this point, Pedro's been in jail for more than a year. And in that time, Manny's had some big breakthroughs. He's attracted tons of media attention to the case. And he managed to track down William Stevens, the young man who Manny believed to be the prosecution's key witness. William Stevens told Manny he hadn't actually seen Pedro commit a crime. He said Terrell had coerced him into lying by beating him up. 
For months, Manny had been saying that if he just found Stevens, he'd win the whole case. Now that he's found him, he isn't satisfied. Manny spoke with Stevens' mom again, and she told him something new. She said the cops dragged her son out of the apartment for questioning not just once or twice, but many times. Hearing this, Manny assumed the cops pressured Stevens to lie on many people, not just Pedro. He guessed that as many as 25 kids could be in jail because of the cops forcing Stevens to lie on them. And that's why we're here today, in Manny's car, parked outside his apartment building. Manny's about to drive back to the prison to talk to William Stevens again. He wants to ask Stevens if he lied about other people the way he lied about Pedro. This time we're going with him, and someone else is joining us. Someone who was supposed to be here an hour ago. God forbid I get him to be on time, that prick, you know? Um, uh, hello? Hey, you nut, where the hell are you? Yeah, I'm late doing this shit. I'm running out the door right now. I'm gonna cat. Oh, I'm gonna stab you, all right? <laughs> I'm over here waiting for you over here with a freaking bagel and shit and coffee. All right, well, it's gonna be a nice coffee, you prick. Thanks, right, bye. <laughs> Jesus Christ. He's my brother from another mother, the attorney. All right. The attorney, the one who Manny called his brother from another mother, is John Scola. John's a civil lawyer who's worked with Manny on a number of cases. He's been representing a bunch of the kids who've been suing Terrell for abuse. And now he's hoping to sign up William Stevens as a client, too. After another half hour, he finally shows up. Dude, I'm so fucking late. Oh, no, there's no shit, man. Eh? I fell asleep on the couch, don't work. Is that what it was? Yeah, shut up. Fuck off. All right. <laughs> John flicks his cigarette into the street and settles into the car. He's young, in his early 30s. This morning, he's got dark circles under his eyes. But he's wearing a jazzy summer suit, light gray with a pink shirt, and his hair is shiny and stiff with gel. We hit the road, and the guys keep bickering, swearing, taking digs at each other, arguing over directions like an old married couple. Just turn the fuck around. Hello, it's that way. Just stop. Straight, buddy. Look, you see that? No, it's right there. Yeah, we, we gotta go to the road. And then what road is that? Plank, Plank road. road. Thank you. <laughs> John and Manny don't just disagree about directions. They have fundamentally different attitudes. If Manny sees himself as a hero, a good guy, John seems suspicious of the whole idea of good guys. He thinks everyone has an agenda, and he doesn't share Manny's unwavering sense of conviction. On the car ride, whenever Manny claims that he knows something to be 100% true, John's like, how can you be so sure? John, you're, you're like, you're consistently a little skeptical of Manny. Yeah, that keeps him honest. <laughs> he gets in his one-track mind, and he, he, he knows that he's right, so then I always try to get him to see other sides of things. Yeah, but the because there is no side. See, you can't even go over this conversation without arguing about it. I'm not arguing about it. I agree. This he's is, arguing about arguing. See, the problem is he's with a freaking gray area. There's no gray area with me. Yeah, yeah. You write a rule. The world is gray. Right. Is it not? Well, that's your fucking world. The world is gray. My world is black and white. Yeah. Right and wrong. You're not black or white. You're half Hispanic, half white. So for you, how could it be black and white? Good fucking point. It's gray. Bullshit. It's right and wrong. All right. All right. Uh, good, good point. Even though you were right. I know. Right? <laughs> but you were also wrong. Yeah, I know. So it was great. All right. Thanks. As we drive, the city gives way to the suburbs and eventually to mountains and farmland. We're headed to Green Correctional Facility, 
two hours upstate from the Bronx. That's it. Now we're about to arrive at the prison where you see a whole field of, it looks like either cabbage or lettuce. Finally, this grim old building looms in front of us. Looks like a castle with tall arching windows and forbidding watchtowers. We pull into a parking lot. John and Manny get out, and Meg and I wait for them as they go into the prison to talk to William Stevens. We're not allowed in with them, but they've gotten permission to record the conversation, so they take a recorder with them. Inside the prison, John switches on the recorder. This is going to go like this. I think it's recording right now. Good. We're good. That's fine. They're in the visiting room, where they're scheduled to meet with William Stevens. And as they wait for him to be brought in, they head to the vending machines to get him some snacks and a Snapple. Uh, you want peach? Sold out, man. For a raspberry or diet? The peach thing, dude. They wait for a long time. Half an hour. At last, William Stevens comes out. All right, uh, well, first of all, I want to ask you, how you doing? Eat. They sit down with him and begin asking him the questions they drove up here to ask. Now, I'm the investigator in charge, and what did I tell you when I saw you last time? Your problem is whose problem? All right, and you're my what? You're my client, you're my man now, okay? And what I want you to know is, is that being that, all right, I went to see your mom after what you told me and your stepfather. And they told me something disturbing that I need to verify. They told me that you were taken down to that precinct more than twice. You said like 25 times. About 25 times. Is that true? Yeah. For different. Guess what? For different. Guess what? You were taken how many times? 25. All right. In this recording, William Stevens quietly corroborates his mother's story. Says that he was taken down to the precinct multiple times. But he sounds uncertain, reluctant. And so John says something to put him at ease, something that catches my attention when I listen back to the tape. You're fine. So you said to, uh, at least I was told that they tried to get you We're here to, to make you some money. I heard, I heard that they were trying to get you to lie. We're here to make you some money. There's no rule against saying something like this, at least in New York. You're allowed to discuss the possibility of a settlement with a potential client. But I talked to several legal experts who had different views of whether this was advisable. One of them said it's risky, because if you dangle the possibility of a payday in front of someone, they might be tempted to say whatever they think will get them paid, even if it isn't the truth. To me, it would follow that once you've brought up the possibility of a settlement with someone, whatever they say next should be viewed with an extra layer of skepticism. But when I listen back to the tape of Manny and John talking to Stevens, I don't hear a lot of skepticism. On how many different people did they try to get you to lie on? Pedro, and then a couple other people I don't know. All right, so how many, couple other people? Five people, ten people? So like ten. Ten other people? So ten other people. Did they make you try to sign a a photo array picture like they did on the Pedro case? Yes. Did you sign the photo array picture on the other cases? No. How many of them did you sign? I signed five. Five. So you signed five Five different pictures? Yes. Of even Pedro? Yes. Okay. In this recording, William Stevens says he thinks he may be lied about a couple people, and then Manny throws out some concrete numbers. Five, ten. So William Stevens says, yeah, it was ten. 
Throughout the recording, I hear John and Manny throwing out numbers and details, while Stevens quietly agrees. Maybe it's true that Stevens falsely incriminated lots of people, but this interview alone doesn't convince me that he has. John would later say he heard the interview differently. He said the way William Stevens was acting struck him as the way someone would act if he'd been a victim of police abuse. Where I heard vagueness and tentativeness, John just heard a kid who had good reason to distrust the authority figures asking him questions. And Manny and John didn't have a lot of time to draw Stevens out. The prison had only given them a brief window to talk to him. Back in the prison, John and Manny start asking William Stevens for the names of different people he lied about. And then... Um, I wanted to ask you, so... The tape cuts out. For the record, I don't think this was on purpose. John didn't know how to use the recorder, and later he'll tell us that he accidentally hit the wrong button. After a couple hours, Manny and John emerge from the prison and hurry over to the car where I'm sitting with Meg. All right, we got two thumbs up. Manny flashes a big thumbs up. I was right. I kept shutting off. I was right. This is really huge. Hold on. Okay? This was major. This was major. All right? It's actually looking like uh, more than 25. Yeah that I got from him Plus, and four um, more witnesses. On the trip back to the Bronx, they keep talking excitedly about William Stevens. They say he admitted to lying about over 25 people. There's no tape of this, maybe because the recorder got turned off. But they say there are 25 kids who could be in jail right now because of false statements William Stevens had been coerced into making. They say he recounted multiple beatings at the hands of several different police officers. And Manny says he's sure the DA's office knew about it and didn't do anything. That, you know, I finally got all the evidence that's been confirming my suspicion for the past 11 months. Yeah. That the district attorney's office was corrupt. This whole situation with William Stevens, there seems to be a lot of gray area here. We know how Manny feels about gray area. In the car, he doesn't pause to wonder whether the information he got from Stevens is solid enough to act on. He's already talking about how he's going to go to the press with this story. And he's fantasizing about how he's going to free all those other kids. Right now, that sounds pretty improbable. But Manny's about to show me, once again, that sometimes the improbable comes true. He's got good news. What? He's got, he's got a text from Lorraine. Saying what? They're I don't know. He's got good news. I got told. Hold on. I don't know. i got to see. As we head back to the Bronx, Manny gets a text. It's from Pedro's court-appointed lawyer. Hey, brother, tell me you won the lotto or something. If you're telling me good news, it better be good news from you. So what happened? Tell me. Here's what happened. Thanks to all the local press Manny's already drummed up, Pedro's story reached Sean King, a prominent activist and journalist. Sean King wrote a piece about Pedro's case that went viral. And it reached Kerry Kennedy. Yes, one of those Kennedys. She's the head of the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Organization, and they've agreed to pay the entirety of Pedro's bail. Tomorrow morning, Pedro will be released from jail. This is phenomenal news. Yeah, news that now Pedro's getting out. Today was a, a, a beautiful day. The next morning, Manny shows up to Rikers for Pedro's release. He goes inside the jail to deliver some fresh clothes to Pedro. A crisp white Michael Jordan t-shirt, some shorts, and a hat to match. He doesn't want Pedro coming out in the world in a Rikers uniform. While Manny's in there, Jessica waits at the entrance. 
There's a small crowd of visitors who are there to see their own friends and relatives. But it seems like a lot of them have heard of Pedro. As Pedro takes his first steps through the gate, they start to cheer. Now Pedro and his, and his mom are hugging, rocking back and forth. Now he's got his arm around his mom, they're walking away. Jessica's beginning to cry. Hey Pedro, how you doing? Good. Pedro's troubles aren't over. His trial date is still looming. And if he loses at trial, he'll end up right back behind bars. But unlike so many other people, the thousands of people who get arrested and sent to Rikers each year and who are held there in bails they can't afford to pay, now he can at least wait in the safety of his home. He'll have more time to plan his defense with a lawyer. And when he goes to trial, instead of showing up in a jumpsuit, he'll be able to face the jury in a suit and tie. Manny walks over to the TV reporters who've gathered at the entrance of the jail, his chest bulging with pride. He did it. The impossible. He strapped on wings and flew right past the sun. His version of Icarus, Icarus the hero, that was the true one. Or at least that's how it seemed at the time. Coming up after the break, Icarus gets a warning and ignores it. After the Kennedy organization took over the case, they helped Pedro in a few big ways. They didn't just post Pedro's bail. They also provided him with a whole team of top-notch lawyers. In a system where the authorities have almost all the advantages, the balance of power had suddenly shifted towards a kid named Pedro from the South Bronx, and none of it would have been possible without Manny. But Manny wasn't as excited as I figured he'd be. The next time I spoke with him on the phone, he spent a lot of time complaining about the new lawyers. The lawyer's not doing the job. You understand what I mean? If you're going to take on a case, then you need to roll up the sleeves and get involved. Not just go, hi, I'm the new attorney, and hi, media, look at me. That's, that's not what this is about. Manny was worried that these new lawyers would get all the credit for Pedro's release. Credit that should be going to Manny. The new lawyers... They weren't thrilled with Manny either. When they got involved, they told him to stop going to the media. They were concerned about Manny publicly accusing officials of corruption, especially the Bronx District Attorney, Darcel Clark, the top prosecutor in the county. That it's not in Pedro's best interest to make any type of allegation against the district attorney publicly. This is Wade McMullen, one of the lawyers with the Kennedy Organization. He and his team thought they could persuade the district attorney to drop the charges against Pedro but not if Manny kept making noise about the case. And to do that while we're trying to negotiate the dropping of Pedro's charges, um, it's just not wise. And and, and why is that? It's not wise because the more accusations you make against the DA, the harder you make it for the DA to actually drop the charges. They were worried that Manny was backing the district attorney into a corner, putting her in a position where she couldn't just quietly drop the charges. To them, it seemed like Manny was forcing her to choose between two options, either launching a big public investigation into allegations of wrongdoing in her own office or fighting even harder to convict Pedro. On the phone with Manny, I asked if he thought these new lawyers maybe had a point. No, not in my opinion. 
I, I, this is not my first rodeo. And like I told you in the beginning, when we first saw this case, the one way you get an attorney to say dismiss is you choke them with the evidence and jam it down their throat. There's no way for them to rebut it. You know? No way. You should not be a passive aggressive to fight a fight like this. You must roll through it like a Bradley tank going into a battle zone. Uh, that's the only way. And that's something that I know about. You know? That's something that I have experienced and that they don't. All right? And I know how to attack the enemy. In other words, these high-class lawyers with their fancy degrees and their ridiculous notion that things should be handled with diplomacy intact, maybe they knew how to succeed in the rarefied air of downtown Manhattan, but they didn't know the first thing about the Bronx. I see this as a battle plan. I'm treating this as an act of war. In this case, it's just making the enemy realize that they have no other choice but to surrender. Or right. Total annihilation. And so, Manny went rogue. More allegations of witness coercion by the NYPD, and now the DA's office. News Force 6 starts right now. He introduced William Stevens and his explosive story to the media. 20-year-old William Stevens says he was more than a secret witness. He claims he gave false witness against more than two dozen suspects in the Bronx, most notably Pedro Hernandez. How many people have you lied on? I say over 25. 25 people? Yes. He says one of them was Pedro Hernandez. Stevens claims he was pressured to lie on the teen on three separate occasions. Stunningly, Stevens says it wasn't just cops who pressured him to lie. He identified a photo of David Slot, the lead prosecutor in the Hernandez shooting case. This interview, which Manny arranged, was Manny's boldest attack on the district attorney yet. Not only was William Stevens saying that he lied about Pedro three different times, he was repeating the claim that he lied about a lot of other people too, over 25, just like Manny said. And he was also claiming that the prosecutor, David Slot, was in on it. According to Stevens, Slot threatened to send Terrell to his house to harass him if he backed out of testifying against Pedro. I wanted to ask about these allegations, but neither Slot nor the DA's office would comment for this story. The interview with William Stevens was just the beginning. Over the next few weeks, as Pedro's trial approached, the stories kept coming out. I later asked that lawyer, Wade McMullen, about Manny's media blitz. Was there a moment where you guys got really mad at him? Um, <laughs> uh, I think it's hard to put, put uh, a pin in a single moment that uh, we were um, frustrated or concerned. Um, because every step along the way, every piece of new media, every new quote, every new video, every new accusation made it riskier and riskier and put Pedro in a, in a more vulnerable position. The lawyers couldn't reason with Manny, but they figured maybe Jessica could. We talked to Jessica. At one point, Jessica put in writing to Manuel um, saying, do not talk about my child, do not talk about Pedro publicly um, anymore. Uh, and if there are any media requests, please refer them to my lawyer. More than worry. I'm more than worry. I'm more than worry. I talked with Jessica around this time, and she said that she was worried that if Manny's strategy backfired, Pedro would end up paying a steep price. Yes, I'm scared. Because it all falls down on Pedro. So 
that's when I asked Manuel, Manuel, we got to take this easy because it's become more of a problem with all this. You Jessica knew Manny pretty well by now. She didn't doubt that he wanted to help her son, but she knew that Manny had other motives too. He likes the, what you call that, showtime. <laughs> I think he does like the limelight and I, and I think he likes winning. Other than liking to win, he likes proving his point. That's the problem. Because mm. you like winning. We all like winning. But with Manny, he likes showing to the world that he won. He likes bragging about it. In the end, Jessica couldn't reason with Manny either. We're going to be bringing up the private investigator, Manuel Gomez, who's been working with the family, was hired by the family to do their own investigation, and he's going to share some words. A few weeks before Pedro's trial date, the activists who organized that rally for Pedro, the ones who were in the last episode, they held the rally. Manny got on the mic and began attacking the prosecutors. This time he went farther than ever. I'm going to be going to the state attorney general to ask to put charges against, with my evidence, against the assistant district attorney, David Slot, Detective David Terrell, because they need to be in jail. Okay? He was calling for the prosecutor, David Slot, to be locked up. And he was leveling accusations at the office of the district attorney, Darcel Clark. And I should point out here that while he was making this speech, he was standing about 20 steps from the front door of Darcel Clark's office. This case has now uncovered a hornet's nest of corruption on the sixth floor of Darcel Clark's office. If the DA's office really was a hornet's nest, he was kicking it. He was implicating a wider and wider circle of people. He was pushing the envelope. He was flying closer and closer to the sun. And more and more people were watching him up there, rooting for him to fall. On a message board for cops, someone wrote, Gomez, go jump off the George Washington Bridge and spread your wings. You just might make it. And it wasn't just the cops who wanted Manny stopped. It's not that I want him to go to jail or that I don't like the man. But I think he needs to be stopped if he's doing things that aren't the way that a, a private detective should be conducting himself. This is Marty Goldberg, a defense attorney. He's the guy you heard from in the first episode, railing against the injustice of New York's blindfold law. He has a lot of criticisms of the justice system, a lot of the same criticisms that Manny has. But he also has a lot of criticisms of Manny. According to Marty, his problems with Manny began with her first encounter. Marty was defending someone who'd been accused of murder. And to Marty, there wasn't much question that the guy was guilty. He had made a statement to the police admitting the whole thing, but very remorseful. You never saw anybody more poly- apologetic and more remorseful on a video than, than, than this kid, right? Than your client. Right. Couldn't believe he did it, asking forgiveness. Then, one day, Marty got a call. I, I remember clearly I was driving, I believe I was in the car, and the phone rang, and it was it was Manny. And he says to me, Mr. Goldberg, you represent John Doe? And I said, yes. He says, your client didn't do it, he's, he's innocent. And I said, really? I said, okay, well, have you ever seen my client's statement? So he said, no. I said, are you aware that there's a full admission in this case? And he said, no. I said, well, whether you're right or wrong, how can you make a statement like that without knowing all the facts of the case? The conversation became more stupid after that. He told me he had been a police officer, but the things that were coming out of his mouth just didn't make sense to the point where I actually, you know, I was just trying to find out 
if I just have a lunatic on the other end of the phone, right? According to Marty, Manny kept working the case and eventually found a witness who claimed that the defendant didn't do it. But then the prosecutor produced some evidence that contradicted the witness's account. Ultimately, Marty said, the defendant pled guilty. Manny, for his part, says Marty is biased because he used to be a prosecutor and is still friendly with people in that office. And Manny claims that the defendant's remorseful confession wasn't genuine. He says he only made it out of fear. Manny says the murder was gang-related and that the guy was afraid that his family would get killed if he didn't take the fall for the crime. But to Marty, this story revealed some troubling things about Manny. At best, Manny was sloppy, careless. At worst, he tampered with the witness he'd found, getting him to lie. And if that was true, if he was out there tampering with witnesses, a serious crime, he could end up in jail. The other day you uh, started singing a song. Oh, Charlie Brown. You're too young to remember Charlie Brown. He's gonna get caught. Just you wait and see. Why is everybody always picking on me? Those are the lines from the song, right? And that will be his defense. Why are they all picking on me? I'm just here to do good, you know, and, and, and save all these people from a corrupt police department and law enforcement. But I'm, I'm not in that group that thinks that everything is a conspiracy. What do you think is going to happen to Gomez? I think he's going to be doing a perp walk. Much to the delight of the New York City Police Department, because you know that there's, I mean, there is bad blood there. But Manny would say that's the reason why they're doing this to me, you know, but the police department believes that he's unethical. Marty was telling me that Manny was about to come crashing down to earth. If he did, what would that mean for Pedro? In the next and final episode, Pedro's trial date finally arrives. And Manny, he faces a trial of his own. Conviction is a production of Gimlet Media. It's hosted by me, Saki Kanafo, and produced by Meg Driscoll, Chris Neary, and Saeed Tijin Thomas. Our editors are Alex Bloomberg, Jorge Just, Lynn Levy, and Jessica Weisberg. Mixing by Sam Bear and Haley Shaw. Music by Haley Shaw. A credits music is Hard Times by Curtis Mayfield, performed by Baby Huey. The series was developed with help from producer Kate Osborne, and it grew out of a collaboration with the New York Times Magazine. Special thanks to my editor there, Mike Benoit. The series was also made in partnership with Type Investigations. Special thanks to Esther Kaplan and fact-checker Evan Malmgren. Thanks also to Emmanuel Berry, Oluwakemi Aladesui, Sruthi Penamaneni, and the Crime Town team. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find out about the series. And I'm sick and tired of having so many hearts.